Hear God's word this morning. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptians, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. And he, in his name, uh, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, or the God who sees. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lehi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called him the name of his son, whom whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Our faithful and gracious Father, We have heard and will hear much about the gospel this morning, and we're thankful for justifying grace. Those who have received this by faith also need sanctifying grace. Use your word now to impart this grace through faith this morning, whether to justify those who right now do not trust Jesus to save them or to sanctify those who do trust him. We all need grace this morning. And we ask in the name of Jesus, who is the fountain, the source of all grace. Amen. Reformation Sunday. One of the great things that came out of the Reformation, one of the most important phrases that I remember uh, from Martin Luther comes from his uh, commentary on Galatians, and that is in Latin, simil justus et peccator. And if I mispronounce that, I'm sorry. Blame R.C. Sproul. He taught me. Uh, But the idea there is at the same time, at the same time we are both just or justified 
and we are sinners. While we have been justified freely by the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, Christians are still sinners, not just in theory, but in practice. It shows. This is one of those texts that we look at and we see that very reality played out. We heard last week from Genesis 15 that Abram believed God and it was accounted or reckoned to him or imputed to him as righteousness. And so what we see taking place is the experience of a justified man within his family. And it didn't go well. There was lots of sin to be found in that experience. But the big idea this morning is that while we fail, God maintains his commitment to us. Because remember, justification is by faith alone, found in Christ alone. It is not something that depends upon us, but upon Him. And so we see that God sees sin escalate into conflict. That's the first part of what we see going on in this text. Remember, justified, Abram now falls into temptation and to sin. And so we see that godly people still sin big. What takes place here is not minor sin, but is actually relatively significant sin. Though Abram was a godly man, he fell into grievous sin. And so did the rest of his family. We somehow think that, somehow, that when we become a Christian, it's almost like we step on an elevator, you know, and it goes straight to the top, and we're fully sanctified. We're not going to sin anymore. And there are, in fact, some people who actually teach a doctrine of perfectionism. And it's like that. It's like the second blessing where you're in the elevator, boom, you're all the way up, and you don't sin anymore. I've actually met people who say they haven't sinned in years. And I'm going, huh? (laughs) If that were true, I'd want that. My wife would want me to have that, wouldn't she? But that's not the way it is. It's more like the stock market. There are ups and there are downs. And sometimes those downs are small. Sometimes those downs are big. Sometimes those ups are small. Sometimes they are big. The general pattern is going to be up, but there will be times when it goes down. And when it does, it is not pretty. And this is one of those down experiences. The the seeds for this experience were sown not just in the Garden of Eden, but also in Egypt because they involved Sarai's handmaid, Hagar, from Egypt. So, in a sense... Abram's failure in Egypt comes back to haunt him in the promised land. And in fact, we're going to see even as a result, it's going to haunt his family till now, even. We see Sarah here. She's disappointed. They've been in the promised land 10 years. She's now 75 years old. They have been waiting on God for a child for well over a decade at this point. She's looking at how old she is, and she kind of goes, it's done. (laughs) She has really, in a sense, no hope, she thinks, of the promise being fulfilled through her. Oh, foolish Sarah. She's disappointed. She is discontent and possibly even bitter at this providence that God has brought in. Because she lays this at God's feet. God, she says, has kept me from having a child. She sees it rightfully as the Lord's doing that she does not have a child. 
It's hard when God keeps something we want from us. But we notice something significant about this text, and is that she did not cry out to God. Abram, from what we can tell in this text, was not crying out to God. And so Sarai takes matters into her own hands. She comes up with her own solution to this problem. Which leads me to believe that there is idolatry that is at work in in this context. That somehow, in her mind, the promise has become more important to her than God himself. And so as a result, she is going to work to fulfill the promise in her own power instead of waiting upon God to fulfill the promise that he made. Do you see how that's working? God makes the promise and he, and, and he just walked through the pieces of the animals and said, I'm going to do this. And now Sarah is saying, I'm going to do this. And how she's going to do this is unusual for us, except when we think of today. We're, we're familiar with surrogate mothers, right? That's what this is. It's a particular kind of arrangement. It's not like they put an ad in the the back of the newspaper, or went to a lawyer looking for a surrogate. They did something that was rather normal and ordinary in that day, and we see uh, evidence of this in the Code of Hammurabi and in some of the late Assyrian law and even in some letters that we found from this basic time period. It was a socially acceptable solution to her problem. It was one that many people had pursued. And yet, in this instance, it was contrary to faith in God. And so what we see in Proverbs in two places comes true. It rings true here that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. She thinks that this is a really good idea and yet is going to bring destruction to her family for generations. Not just a couple of weeks, not just a couple of days. It's going to bring great devastation to this family. She takes her handmaid. Now, anyone here have a handmaid? I didn't think so. Basically, that was a personal servant. She was Sarah's personal servant. And so she was under the authority and responsibility of Sarai, not Abram. Okay? So that's what we got here. And she's, she's going to be shifted in her responsibility, and she's going to be basically made a concubine which, uh, anybody here have one of those? Good, because if you did, you'd come under church discipline, right? (laughs) Basically, a concubine is a wife with limited rights. She's got sort of the status of a wife, but doesn't quite have all of the responsibilities and uh, blessings of a wife. It's like a mostly wife. So she's going to be elevated to this status. And what happened in the law of that day was that if she bore a son to Abram, she would then be declared to be Sarah's son, not her own. So this is the solution that Sarah comes up with to the problem of their infertility. Honey, have my handmaid. I don't know about you. I can't ever imagine Amy saying that to me. (laughs) And yet, this is what she comes up with and presents to her husband. 
And what we find is that Abram obeyed Sarah. Listen to her. That's the same word in Hebrew. To listen is, is also to obey. It works, works for both of those things. There's an echo here of the Garden of Eden. When Ab- Ab- uh, ugh, too many A's. Adam listened to Eve. That is what God said. He, he comes, he, he's finally coming to bring the curse upon Adam. And he says, because you obeyed your wife. Now, the problem is not, not that he did what she said. The problem, his sin, is that he did not ask God to see if her plan was wise or foolish. We talked about this in officer training a couple Sundays, uh, Saturdays ago. That we as husbands can benefit from the wisdom of our wives. We should be open to hearing their counsel. But we recognize that they are not the final word. God is the final word. And so what Adam, uh, Abram should have done, just as what Adam should have done as well, is he should have said, gone to God. He said, is, is this solution good or is this crazy? To which God would have said, crazy, run. <laughs> Fast as you can, say no. But instead, he goes along with this. And the, and the words that are used remind us again of Genesis 3, just as Eve took and gave the fruit to Adam, she takes and gives her handmaid to Abram. Moses wants us to think of that great temptation in the garden. For this will bear bad fruit, just like that one did. And so what happens is that it snowballs. This this sin begins to snowball without repentance, Hagar, it actually, she actually accomplishes her purpose. Hagar becomes pregnant. But then a shift takes place. Hagar begins to look lightly upon and treat lightly her mistress. Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who treat you lightly. The same word that is found here. Moses wants us to remember the, the promise from Genesis 12. And kind of go, uh-oh. <laughs> Does this mean something really bad is about to happen to Hagar? Then we'll see yes and no. But then Sarai comes back to Abram. Okay, remember, this is, this is months now that this has been kind of going on in this family. This was not a, a one-time event. This was a series of events over the course of months And basically she says, it's your fault. Don't we like to do that? (laughs) We come up with a crazy idea and then we blame someone else because they went along with it. That's essentially what's going on here. She comes up with a crazy idea, but it's Abram's fault that he went along with it. And in fact it is. I mean he was he's passive here. He's wimpy man. He's not bold. Where's the guy who went and took on the four kings? He can't even take on his wife. It's a little harder when it's your wife, isn't it, guys? <laughs> You've got to deal with the repercussions. And Abram was not willing to deal with the repercussions, apparently. And, and he says, you know what, honey? Probably didn't say honey, but you know what? She's your handmaid. 
You deal with her. Again, this passivity, this passing the buck, this not really taking responsibility and exhibiting any kind of meaningful leadership in the home. This family is in chaos. And then we find these interesting words, may the Lord judge between you and me. It's interesting. Now she's talking about God. May the Lord judge between you and me. At the very end of this passage, I'm going I'm to steal from the end of the passage, because Hagar recognizes that he is the God who sees. And what Sarah is recognizing here with this, may God judge between you and me, is that they have been living this before the face of God, Coram Deo. All of this has played out, and he sees their sin and rebellion and stubbornness and bitterness and pride and all of these things, idolatry, that have gone into making this humongous mess in their family. But here's the thing. She thinks that there's an innocent party involved. Well, I guess there was one, the child in the womb. It had nothing to do with any of this particular situation. There is no innocent party. They're all guilty. They're all culpable before God for their part in this drama that has taken place. God sees their sin. He, there is misery that is taking place. But we don't see God bringing out the big stick. What Sarah does is she tries to bring Hagar back into submission. That same word we saw last week, we're talking about how Israel was going to be brought into submission to Egypt. Here it's the reverse, so to speak. But it's that idea of humbling, forceful submission. She's trying to bring Hagar back in line. And what does Hagar do? Heads for the hills. Starts running. All of this is to say, to remind us, that sanctification is not a straight line. There's highs, there's lows. We crash, we burn. They've crashed. They haven't even realized it yet. God sees our sin. But this does not destroy justification because that rests completely upon Christ. All right, let's move from that. That God's solution in this situation is repentant submission, not escape. When Hagar runs, where do you think she goes? Just any old place? Back to Egypt. Huh. Isn't that sort of just what the Israelites would do later on, try to run back to Egypt? They always want to go back to Egypt. They forget how bad a place it was for them. She makes it all the way to the border of Egypt. She's at a spring by the wall, which is what sure means. It refers to a wall. So she's, she's gotten to the border wall that exists. Okay? She's at the spring, and it is there that the angel of God comes upon her. And what we find is rather unique in Scripture because the angel calls her by her name but also repeats her status, that she's a handmaid and that she has a mistress, which sort of indicates you're not where you're supposed to be. What are you doing here? Now, some people have the idea that this, is, that this angel is the pre-incarnate son in a theophany. Um, 
I'm not really sure about that. That there seems to be. I mean, that's a that's a theory. There's really not a whole lot of evidence to support that. We find that the the idea of an angel is that as a messenger, it is basically a surrogate. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? A surrogate for God. The the angel bears God's authority because the angel speaks God's message to these people. But this angel is distinct from God. Nonetheless, she admits that she's on the run, but she doesn't really confess her guilt in any of this. She's not like, you know, I can't stand her anymore. I'm mad at her. What does the angel say? Return and submit. Return. That same word in Hebrew that is used for repent. Because that's what repentance is. It is returning. Repentance is turning away from sin, but it is returning to God. That's the idea of repentance. And I heard recently from something I was watching or listening to that in this that context, the way out is the way through. And that's really essentially what the angel is saying to her. The way out of your situation is not to run away, but it is to, to go through the situation. You can't run from the fires of purification. You must go through the fires of purification. It is not to run. It is not to escape. But rather, it is to repent and to submit to the proper authority that is over you in this instance. And so we see that Jesus himself did not save us by escaping the law. He did not save us by escaping his responsibility, but indeed he saved us by fulfilling his obligations, fulfilling his responsibility, doing that which was right and good, walking through even though it meant the cross. There's something else going on here. At that stage in the history of redemption, where is the source of blessing? Abram. To flee Abram's family is essentially to flee the grace that can be found from God. She's cutting herself off from the very source of blessing. I never ran away from home. But I know someone who did. For a whole of 30 minutes, my wife ran away from home when she was a child. She ran away from the protection and the provision of her parents because she was mad about something that she probably doesn't even remember. Do you even remember, dear? No. Yeah, suitcase was packed. She packed up her stuff and she left. She came back because it was probably too heavy. Sort of like... I was thinking of Ramona and Beezus. We took the kids to see that, and, and that's what the mom, Ramona, was going to run away from home. And so mom said, okay, and she packed her suitcase and made sure there was really heavy stuff in there, so, bowling ball and everything else, so that she would have time to reconsider and repent before the bus picked her up. So it ended well with Ramona as well. Um, but cutting off from the source of blessing, that which was meant to to provide for her. She's cut herself off from that. And, and when we sin, when we live in rebellion, that's what we're doing. In a, in a sense, we are cutting ourselves, we're distancing ourselves from Christ, who is the source of every spiritual blessing. 
And so we repent precisely by returning to Jesus, by leaving our rebellion and idolatry behind in order to receive the blessing. We recognize that the satisfaction we seek is not to be found in our rebellion, but it is to be found in Christ himself. That we cannot achieve the blessings of God apart from the Christ in whom they are found. Just like she can't find the blessings of Abram apart from Abram must return to Him to receive them. And this is part of what leads Martin Luther in his very first theses that he knocked upon that door, the door of the Wittenberg church that morning all those years ago when he says that the entire lives of believers is to be one of repentance. It's not like we repent when we come to faith at our conversion. The whole life is meant to be one where we continually recognize the ways in which we fall short And we ask for God's forgiveness and endeavor to do right by His grace and mercy. And so what happens in addition to this is to kind of sweeten it a little bit. The angel provides a promise that this son will receive earthly blessings. And it's interesting because it sounds almost like the promise that God gave to Abram. Numerous unable to count how many descendants that shall come from this child. However, there is a warning. There is a not-so-good part of this, that this son is going to be like a wild donkey. And I've read some commentators, and they're trying to spin this into a good thing. (laughs) If I called you a wild donkey, would you think that's a good thing? No, stubborn. Solitary. He's going to be in conflict with his brother. He is going to be a thorn in the side of the true child of promise and all of his descendants until the end of time. And so from him come the Arabs. And we know what goes on in the Middle East today, right? Do they get along? No. It's not until they experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ that they start to get along. But to the degree that they don't, they're still fighting each other. They're still stubborn and caught in all of this. And so we recognize as a result of this that though sin may be pardoned, it could also have painful earthly consequences. The battery's not going. Painful consequences. You may be forgiven for your deceit, but that may not mean you you don't lose your job if you lied at work and covered something else up. Or it might not be, depending on the size of your deceit, that you might not lose your spouse. There can be earthly consequences to our sins, even though God pardons us and we do not experience eternal consequences to it. And so... Free grace does not mean free for all. We can do what we want. There will be consequences. And so God sees our sin, but he also works to sanctify us through repentance and submission. Which brings us to the last point. Pray. God hears the cry of the afflicted. The angel also says that she was to name the boy Ishmael. When we were 
thinking of a name for Jaden. Amy said the baby book said Jaden meant God hears. And what Hebrew is that? Ishmael means God hears. Because God had heard her misery. He saw the sin, but he hears the cries of affliction. He heard even though she didn't pray. Or we have no, at least we have no record of her praying. She wasn't seeking God. She was running away from God's man. Nonetheless, God heard Sarai and Abram's misery as well. Though at this point they weren't voicing it. Ishmael's name is in a sense a painful reminder that they should have prayed instead of resorting to a surrogate. Every time his name is going to be called out, dinner time, Ishmael, they're reminded of their folly and foolishness. But they're also reminded of the grace of God because God does hear. Faith moves us like the persistent widow to pester God in prayer that he might keep his promises. Yeah, way too many P's in there. It's okay. But that's what faith does. It moves us to pester him. Isaiah 62. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. So basically he's saying, don't give yourselves any rest, but also don't give God rest until he keeps the promise that he made to Jerusalem. Is what's going on in Isaiah 62. Paul, most likely thinking of that, says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in one of the shortest verses in the Bible, because it's two words, pray continually. Wear God out, wear yourself out. It says. But what happens instead is that unbelief tends to stifle our prayer through guilt. We think that we're not welcome in God's presence because we're guilty or we're, af- we're afraid of the consequences if we get too close to Him because, you know, we did something wrong last week or this morning. Or we doubt that God will actually care about our affliction or our misery. And so unbelief through these things keep us from grace because they keep us from God Himself. Our prayerlessness is a sign of the remnant of unbelief in our hearts. We do not make use of the means of grace that God has has provided for us. There will be very little sanctification in our lives if there is very little prayer in our lives. Prayer is not just that we, people might feel better or get a job. Those are good things and we need to pray for those things. It is also for the sanctification of our souls. It is one of the means of grace for that purpose. 
And so what happens is that Jesus provides for our access to the Father. He has removed our guilt so that no longer stands between us and God. Guilt should never keep you away from the throne of God because of that. Because of Christ and Him crucified, we are free to come before Him. Not only that, but it should also remove the fear of punishment that we experience. But instead, we should see the love of God for us and want to be there by faith, brothers and sisters. And so I encourage you to shake off your doubts when the Spirit beckons. What did we see last week? Abram brought his doubts to God. He didn't run from God because of his doubts. He brought them there. And so we shake off our doubts in the presence of God when the Spirit beckons for us to go to Him in prayer. And so pray in the midst of your failure. Pray in the midst of your sin. Ask for strength to resist. Ask for pardon for having grieved Him. But pray in your failure. Pray in your fear. Lift that up. Father, I am afraid of my wife or my boss or the election or the whatever it is. I am afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being with this person for the next 40 years. I don't know what it is. But that which is your fear, bring it to Him. Pray in the midst of your fears. And not only that, but also pray in the midst of your doubts. That He would reassure. Recognizing that He is the God who hears. It ends on a good note. Sort of. Because eventually the child is born. And apparently Hagar reported what she experienced in the desert to Abram. And whether or not he felt remorse or whatever, he did in some sense have repentance because he did, in fact, name the child Ishmael in obedience to the message of God. He learned the hard way. God hears, as well as sees. So God sees our sin. But as Christians, we must know that we are still justified by faith alone. But we need also to be sanctified. We repent and submit and also rejoice that we might die to sin and grow in grace. But God also hears our misery. Prayer is a means of grace for our our comfort in affliction and also for our sanctification. So make use of the means He provided through His Son. Let us pray. Father, we um, should shudder when we we think, we realize, we acknowledge that you see all of our sin in all of its ugliness and all of its boldness and all of its filth that you see. And were it not for your Son, we would become undone. 
We can't even bear for our friends to know some of our sin. And yet you see it all. And we are grateful knowing that you also hear our misery. That in Christ you have drawn near to us in our sin and misery to bring us into abundant life. That we might know and experience peace, joy, love, faithfulness, patience, gentleness, and kindness, faith, and hope. And so I ask that you would grant these things and even more yourself. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your eternal Son, and our justification and sanctification. Amen.